Hi, you're listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life with me, your host, Mimi Novik. I'm so happy and thrilled to have you here with me. I have created this series for all of us so we can change our world together and live a more holistic and balanced life. Together, we will share lots of inspiring stories from all walks of life, speak with leading experts, enjoy healthy living ideas, explore music and subjects that inspire each other to always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all of you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secrets for an Inspirational Life. How are you all? I hope that wherever you are, it's a beautiful evening or a beautiful day, wherever you may be in the world, here in the United Kingdom. We are in the evening now, actually, because the nights are drawing in and autumn is actually upon us with all its beauty. And now in these times especially, we try, if we can, look at the most simplest things as being the most beautiful things and not to take things for granted. Especially something that's very close to my heart is the animal kingdom. It's something that I've always cherished as a child. And we may, some of us, believe that they are really not the same as us. And in many ways, they're not. But I do believe that animals have a soul. And I do believe that every single being on this planet has a right to live and is equally precious. Doesn't matter who we are or what we are, what we look like, where we come from. You know, that is really irrelevant. What is important is that we are cherished beings and we are really divine. And we have this opportunity to share the most beautiful moments with each other on this planet that's so wonderful. And let us not try and forget that. Let us try to remember all the beauty still that surrounds us and let our hearts be compassionate to each other and most of all to ourselves. Now, I am absolutely delighted and honoured. I really, really am. I've been waiting for this for quite a while now, and that is to welcome my next guest. He is the prolific wildlife protection campaigner, writer, and broadcaster, Dominic Dyer. Dominic is the CEO of the Badger Trust and the wildlife advocate at the Born Free Foundation. Dominic became a wildlife protection campaigner after a 20-year career in the civil service. And he was also in food manufacturing and plant science industries, using the skills he acquired in Whitehall, Brussels, and the corporate boardroom, along with his highly regarded and powerful voice that he has now used to fight for animal rights and welfare globally. His first book, which is named Badgered to Death, The People and Politics of the Badger Cull, published in 2016, has been widely acclaimed and is now one of the best-selling British wildlife books of recent years. Dominic is a board member of Wildlife and Countryside Link 
and also of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. He is extremely knowledgeable and he is also a passionate speaker and can be seen and heard on many animal protection rallies, protests and conferences. Dominic is also a regular contributor to print and broadcast media on a wide range of wildlife issues, ranging from the badger, cull, and fox hunting here in the UK, to global wildlife crime, whaling, the dog meat trade, and many more. Absolutely amazing what he does, I have to say to you. And today he's going to share his story with us. Welcome, Dominic. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. How are you? I'm fine, thank you very much. Keeping busy in these very difficult times. Uh, there's never a shortage of animal issues to address, I'm afraid. Yes, I know, I know. I, I follow a lot of the things that you do and all of the magnificent things that you do for the animals and so many different causes that you are part of and are trying to bring about a huge change in everything that is related to that. Now, Dominic, Tell us a little bit about how this quest of yours, because it seems like this humongous quest of spirit and nobility, really, to reach such a point as where you are today. Well, you know, I think like many people, I've always been interested in the natural world. I suppose, you know, from a young age, I was always interested in animals and nature and wildlife. And, you know, I was greatly impacted by, you know, the work of Sir David Attenborough when I was very young. Uh, life on Earth in 1978, when I was eight years old, had a huge impact on my life. I remember getting a hard copy of that book as a child and, you know, devouring it in terms of, of the information and beautiful images it provided alongside the television series. So, you know, I think I grew up with an interest in, in nature and what was happening in the world. You know, it was probably more by look and judgment, really, that I, I fell into the civil service. I, I started in a, in a very junior grade in the civil service. I went through what was called the Civil Service Commission at the time. I left school at 15 with a few O-levels. I wasn't certain what I wanted to do in my life. My father moved south because he'd lost his job in the north of England. So I started working on a building site, uh, 15, 16 years of age, doing sheet metal mm -hmm. work and things. But it wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I decided I wanted to work in an office. And my father said to me, well, maybe you should look at a job in the civil service. And he gave me a, a copy in advert in the London Evening Standard that said that they were looking for clerks in the civil service. I went along to, to an interview for the Civil Service Commission for an admin assistant, the most junior grade. And I did very well at the interview. And they said, listen, we'd like to offer you a job, but we'll, we'll let you know what department we send you to. So my life could have been very different if they'd have sent me to the Department of Health or Social Security. But they sent me to the Ministry of Agriculture. Uh, and the first department they sent me to was the legal department. And I, I was basically you know, handling files and bags and papers and going to court with lawyers on, on prosecutions for, of people who were being cruel to wildlife, illegal wildlife poison incidents and things like that was what I started on. So from the very beginning, you know, from my career, I started to understand a bit about the law, a bit about wildlife crime. And as my career went on the civil service, I worked in marine environment protection, in organic farming, in trade policy in Britain and Brussels, and started to learn more about how the government works and how issues around agriculture and farming work. So I was probably fortunate I got a good starting point in government to understand issues that I still deal with very much today. I then went on to work in the food industry. Uh, I left the civil service in 2000 to join an organization called the Food and Drink Federation. And uh, I joined that organization at a time when the food industry was going through great change. 
And um, I've started to work with major food manufacturers like Nestle and Unilever and Coca-Cola and others to start developing more vegan, vegetarian, organic foods. So this market that we're now familiar with today, of course, was in its sort of infancy in those days, the so-called natural foods market. So I, I did a lot of work working with these major food producers to develop you know, new lines of products for a rapidly growing market and spent a lot of my time in Europe, North America and other parts of the world beginning to understand how consumers were looking for foods that dealt with their concerns about animal welfare, about in the environment, about food production systems. And I spent many years working in that area of work. Then I went on to work in a more controversial area, which is all about plant science, plant breeding, genetic modification of food with big companies like Monsanto and Syngenta that many environmental groups have concerns about their actions, but it was an interesting time to, to take on the chief executive role of the plant science industry as I did, because we were dealing with big global food security issues in 2008. People might remember that the, the, the rapid rise in food prices, drought and other problems around the world made people think about, you know, could we grow enough food for the rapidly rising population? So I spent a lot of my time in Africa, China, Europe and other parts of the world, understanding more about how we grew food, how we needed to look at how we use land for a rapidly rising population in the world, the issues about climate change and all the things that we're more familiar with again today than ever before. But in that time, I also got more involved in working in wildlife conservation work. I became a trustee of a charity called Care for the Wild International. Um, I spent time in Africa beginning to understand more about poaching, writing articles about what was happening to elephants, which were being killed, as you know, in increasing numbers for their ivory. And yes. I got more interested in some of the issues around British farming and agriculture, particularly in relation to bovine TB and badgers. Um, I worked closely with the farming industry and government, but I was worried that there was a move afoot to demonize the badger and start killing it in large numbers because of concerns that it was spreading TB to cows. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I decided I wanted to, to leave a well-paid lobbying job in the, in the plant science food industry and move into, into wildlife full time. So in 2012, I sort of up sticks really walked away from a corporate career and decided I wanted to become a full-time wildlife campaigner. And to do that, I, I got stuck into the badger issue, which was a key issue that I understood about farming and agriculture and bovine TB, but also more involved looking at international trade in wildlife, what was happening with regards to Africa's wildlife as well. And as you said at the beginning, really what I did, I just took my communication, lobbying, campaigning skills that I'd used in government and then in industry and started mm. to apply it to, to wildlife conservation, which I think is different to people coming into this sector from maybe a zoological or science or naturalist background. But I think it's been very useful to me because I know my way around politics and, and, and how institutions and government work and the media, all of which is terribly important when you want to stand up for animals as well. It's quite really extraordinary, the work that you do now, because you are, as I mentioned earlier, the CEO of the Badger Trust. And I know at the moment, there has been a lot of things in the press. Tell us a little bit about what is going on and where we are with that at the moment. The badger cull is a, a very divisive issue in Britain. It's actually been going on for over four decades, since the 1970s. And I wrote about that in Badger to Death. It was really, the book was written because I wanted to tell the, the whole story about how this animal has been demonized and blamed 
for what is really a, a form of industrial pollution from intensive livestock farming in Britain. Um, the problem we have with our farming sector, like you have in many other parts of the world, is it's become more and more intensive as time has gone on. The herds have got bigger. We melt cows you know, to produce milk in a more intensive way, so the welfare for the animals has decreased. Uh, we keep large numbers of cattle inside for over six months through the year in damp conditions. We move them around the country and trade millions of cattle every year. And by doing that, we, we increase the risk of the spread of diseases like TB uh, between cows, which is predominantly where it goes from one cow to another. But then it spills out into the natural environments. It infects badgers, it infects rats, weasels, stoats, foxes, dogs, cats. Uh, a wide range of domestic and wild animal species. But the badger has been blamed, you know, back in the 1970s, the badger got protection under the law because this animal was being, you know, destroyed in large numbers by badger baiters, people that would take, you know, terrier dogs and put them down badger sets to kill badgers for so-called sport and pleasure. And this pastime, which still goes on today, but it's illegal, was very widespread in the 1950s and 60s. And badger protection groups started to appear around the country where people wanted to protect badgers. They literally sat on badger sets to try and keep the baiters off the sets. And then they forced politicians to address the, the issue. And there was a private member's bill in 1973, and we got the first legislation to protect badgers. And that since has been enhanced by the Wildlife Countryside Act and the Protection of Badgers Act. To the point that the badger is some of the strongest protection under the law in Britain today, but also is one of the most demonized species as well. <laughs> The poor badger, when it got yeah. protection in 1973, also fell foul of a, a, a process of testing for TB. Some vets in Surrey from the government vets found a number of badgers had TB and they decided that that was primarily a cause of TB spread to cattle. And all over that period of time, the badger has been demonized to a degree by certain segments of the farming and veterinary livestock industry and governments um, to a degree that they've been gas snared and shot in their tens of thousands over a 40 year period. Um, so we've constantly gone around this roundabout, effectively, where the animal is blamed for the spread of the disease, which is really cattle-based. You know, most TB-related problems is cow-to-cow. Um, unfortunately, you know, the government in 2013 started a new round of badger culling. And since that period of time, over 103,000 badgers have been killed and £60 million of taxpayers' money has been spent killing them. And uh, we felt that there was a process going on in government where they were beginning to review the need to continue killing badgers and they were looking at other options, including vaccinating the animals against TB and cattle as well. But this year, the government made a U-turn and basically decided it wanted to expand the policy further. So in September, they initiated 11 new licenses and probably will kill 65,000 more badgers this year in a massive expansion of the policy, which has caused a lot of public anger and greater media interest in recent weeks as well about what's happening to this animal. So, you know, I do numerous interviews, write articles, I've written a book and spend a lot of my time campaigning on this issue. It feels like it never ends after seven yeah. years of work, but yeah. I suppose you've got to keep going. You know, I keep talking about what realistically is, is, is the problem, trying to ensure that we can find solutions that are humane, which is why I think trapping and vaccinating badgers, which we can do very well, needs to be expanded. Trying to find solutions in the cattle industry for how we can deal with TB without killing wildlife. And trying to tell politicians and farmers and landowners that actually we can't farm in this country in a way that we just eradicate animals like badgers, because we could remove them from parts of the country where they've lived since the Ice Age, and that's just something that we could never do. It, it's terrible, really. It, it really breaks my heart, it, especially when I read about these things, because it's it's such a beautiful creature 
and to be, as you said, demonized in this way. But I know that you do a lot, Dominic, and you have recently done a lot, um, especially because what's happening with the government at the moment and this whole um, badger cull? Well, I think, you know, the government at the moment is obviously under pressure because we continue to draw attention in the public's mind and MPs and in the media to what's actually happening. They feel at the moment there's justification based upon the scientific evidence that they present to say that if they cull badgers, they can reduce bovine TB in cattle. But most of the evidence they produce has more holes than a Swiss cheese. And we tell them that, you know, you can't continue to do this to a degree because you're going to reduce the number of badgers so far that they can't repopulate. So we have a complaint before the Berne Convention, which is a European treaty that the British government is signed up to, um, to protect badgers in Britain, because Britain has over 25% of whole of Europe's population of badgers, and has duty obligations under the Berne Convention to protect these animals. Um, and I think they're breaching that treaty, which is why we're taking a case against the government there. But what we're trying to say is that we've got to find a better way of dealing with this disease in cattle. We can't keep back killing badgers. It's very, very cruel. We think it's scientifically ineffective and a huge waste of taxpayers' money. Mm. Are we making progress in those arguments? Or well, we have the Wildlife Trust behind us, the RSPCA behind us, a lot of public support, many MPs across all parties. But we still have a very powerful industry lobby group in the farming, livestock, veterinary industry that I've used to work with in the past. I'm very familiar with. And they still have a significant influence over this policy, I'm afraid. And how does it feel, Dominic, that you used to work on that side of the fence, so to speak, and now you're on this side of the fence? I think, you know, it, it gives me a better insight into the problems and how we might be able to address them. It sometimes mm. causes friction with farmers, landowners I used to work with who feel that, you know, I've betrayed maybe a uh, trust that they had in me in terms of the work I used to do. But, you know, I'm very clear about where I stand. I'm not anti-farmer, uh, but I do think farming has to change in this country. We need to move away from intensive livestock production. We need to embrace plant-based foods more. We need to deal with climate change. We need to stop killing wildlife to protect a declining intensive livestock industry that is bad for our health and is bad for the planet. That is the bottom line. And I think it's an absolute national disgrace if we push badgers to the verge of extinction for an industry that is unwilling to change. Yes, it is. It is. It's, it's a disgrace in, in every way. And I read somewhere, actually, I think a few weeks ago, I don't know, you can tell me about this, Dominic, better than, you know, what I've read. but. Is it really that it could be possible that this, you know, beautiful creature could be extinct? In parts of the country, yes. It won't go extinct completely. You know, there are bits of the country like Scotland, for example, where no TB problems are, you know, a level where they're not culling badgers. But the population of badgers in Scotland is much less than it is in England. There are much smaller communities of animals in much more isolated areas. What we could see is that there are significant communities of badgers that have lived in parts of the southwest of England, for example, since the Ice Age that could disappear in our lifetime as a result of this policy. And I think that would be an ecological vandalism on an unprecedented scale. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And I know that you do a lot of work also, not just with badgers, but you do a lot of work to fight for animal rights and welfare in a lot of different places. Tell us a little bit about that, because I know that we were speaking earlier about the fur trade. That's something that I've also read in the papers. I think yeah. the, on the front page of the newspapers today, we have a, a very interesting story that Zach Goldsmith, the minister that you know I work closely with in government, have known for a long period of time, 
um, has pushed forward with plans to outlaw the sale of fur in Britain when we leave the European single market at the end of January next year. And I would be very pleased to see that happen. Uh, we've campaigned, you know, as organizations like Born Free and other charities against the fur trade um, because it has, you know, a significant impact on wild animals, um, as well as, you know, intensive farming of animals like fox and mink in farms in Europe. We also see animals being trapped like coyotes in North America in large numbers for, for you know, Canada goose products and other uh, fur related products that are sold in, in stores in Britain. Um, this is a cruel trade. Uh, I think a significant majority, as I said, about 80% in recent polling would like to see an end to this trade and an end to the sale of those products. And I think the British government realised, actually, when we get out of the European single market, when we've got some more leeway on law to apply in this country, we could do this. We could stop it. And I think it would be significant and huge move and a very welcome move if Britain did become a, a fur-free country. It wouldn't stop fur being worn here because people could obviously buy products abroad and come in and, and wear them. But it would stop the sale and profit of these manufacturers of these products in Britain. And I think that's something that we should see happen. Most definitely. And, and Dominique, please share with us, because, you know, with the listeners and myself, because a lot of people, I have to say, are ignorant about actually what goes on with these companies that do a lot of harm and kill these innocent animals. Because people think... When I try to explain about certain, you know, companies that, you know, have a very bad press, people will say to me, well, you know, that's just how it is. You know, they don't know the reality of actually what goes on. If you could please enlighten us to that, because I think people out there need to know what they're buying and what actually it is doing to these animals. Well, you know, I was very much I came into office and Tony Blair 97 to try and bring an end to the fur trade in Britain. And I was very pleased to see that that Labour government did shut down the last remaining fur farms in this country in the late 1990s. But fur farming is horrendous. It's still a big, big sector in countries like Denmark. And, and you have huge intensive farms with thousands of mink or fox that are kept in cages and fed in disgusting conditions that are electrocuted and stripped of their fur in a horrendous way um, to produce these high-end luxury fur products. Um, it's a cruel, disgusting industry. It has significant health risks associated with it. There's been a lot of COVID-19 outbreaks in recent months in fur farms in Europe that have had the implications that, you know, mass numbers of animals have had to be destroyed. Um, and it's an industry, in my view, that has no fit place in the modern civilized world and should come to an end. The other end of it is that you have the trapping of wild animals as well. And, you know, Canada Goose has a very sophisticated marketing PR arm to sell its coats. Many celebrities are often spotted, and J.K. Rowling recently was spotted wearing one, for example. Um, and I think, you know, they're ignorant, stupid. Maybe they don't care, but, you know, they need to think about the product they're wearing. That fur on the collar has come from a coyote. Hundreds of thousands of coyotes are killed in Canada, United States, and they're killed by a leg hole traps, which are absolutely horrendous and cruel that capture those animals. And they are stuck in these horrendous traps for hours on end and sometimes bite through their legs to get out of them. The pain is incredible um, so that the hunters can actually get to the to the animals and then get to their fur, which is used in those products. So it's disgusting, it's cruel, it's inhumane. 
And I just don't think it has any role in, 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 the, in the clothing business. It just shouldn't be happening. But these companies have a lot of power and they have a lot of money, sophisticated lawyers and marketing and PR arms, and they sell the products as being sustainable and wonderful, but actually it's extremely cruel. It is. It, it's horrific, really. And do you really think, Dominic, that people actually know what happens to these animals or are they is it a case of they don't care and as you said it's very good marketing by the company i think a lot of people don't care and you know i've been involved in standing outside you know canada goose stores in london with with placards which show you know exactly what happens to the animals when they're trapped and killed some people will turn away some people will just go in and buy the product regardless and just don't care um so you know you can only do so much to educate people about cruelty I just hope that in time, more and more people will see they don't want to be associated with it. I think the vast majority of people in this country will not buy products of that kind. The other problem that we've had is that you've mm. had so-called you know, fake fur products being sold in cheap markets across Britain, where people think they're buying a fake fur product, but actually it's real fur. It could come from dogs, it could come from rabbits, it could come from cats, much of which is coming out of China. Another really? Southeast Asian. Yeah, so that's another massive problem that we have. So if you think you're buying fake fur, often you can be buying real fur, particularly related to the dog meat or cat meat trade in those parts of the world as well. Oh, Obviously, yeah. you know, these animals are killed for meat, but you have a significant, you know, byproduct in terms of the skins and furs, and they find their way into all sorts of products as well. This is something I actually I didn't know, um, that it could be real fur. Yes, this there's been a lot of investigations. Shocking. You know, the BBC have covered this and PETA and other organisations, the Humane Society International have done very mm. good work, you know, going into shops and taking products or going to markets and actually looking at them and getting them looked at in laboratories and, and actually finding the source of the fur. It's being sold as fake fur, but actually it's real fur. This is horrific, you know, yes. it, it, and, it, because and, some and of it does really look real. And although they write that it's fake fur, Actually, yeah. some of it does look real. Exactly. And I think, you know, the line is, if it looks real, don't buy it. <laughs> don't buy it for any yes. reason. But yeah. there's, been a trend to, there's been a trend to have, you know, bobble hats with little fur bobbles on and, you know, coats with fur trim, you know. And, and a few years ago, they were all over the place. A little bit less recently, but, you know, up to two years ago, you found them everywhere. You know, these trends come and go with clothes manufacturers. But, you know, it's been a big market for the illicit fur trade as well. Now. You mentioned the dog meat trade. That's something yes, yes. Um, that I am really interested in. And, you know, it's diabolical what goes on there. And we really need to highlight this, especially tonight. Now, tell us a little bit for people out there who are not familiar what goes on, because I really want you, Dominic, you know, to, in a way, highlight this and to show really to educate the people what is going on? And then they have a choice in some of the products, for example, that you have mentioned, because I think education goes so far. At least we can try to educate. And, you know, we all have a conscience whether we use it or not. And that's another story, I'm sure. But tell us about this dog meat trade that goes on. Well, you know, the dog meat trade is, is to be found in many countries, China, uh, to be found in Thailand, Taiwan. Um, in countries like uh, South Korea as well. Um, if we take the Chinese issue, um, you've got a trade, you know, the Yulin dog meat festival has been a, a, a key point of campaigning mm. 
for anti-dog meat campaigners for a number of years, and I've been involved in mass protests outside the Chinese embassy in London over the years. What we've really been trying to look at is how a, a festival like that has developed. And the Yulin Festival actually doesn't have a particularly long history. It's in a relatively new development zone of China, and, and the city authorities just felt it was a good way of sort of bringing you know, money and income into the city believe it or not, by actually celebrating the killing of, of, of large numbers of dogs and cats to be eaten during a festival. Um, and the festivals are usually held at the hottest time of the year. And the idea is if you torture the animal to make the, the meat as lean as possible, when I say torture, you sort of literally, you know, you see animals alive being sort of heated up with blow torches or thrown into boiling water, oh, savagely tortured before they're killed. The idea being that when you eat the meat, it's more tender and it will actually reduce the problems of heat exhaustion and other issues around the, the, you know, the hottest time of the year. It's all nonsense, of course, but it means huge, huge suffering to the animals. And there are two elements of it. You know, a lot of people say to me, well, you can't campaign against dog meat trade if you eat meat or you're not a vegan. That's a relevant discussion. I'm not going to discount it. But I would also say that, you know, you can and should do because this isn't like the livestock industry in any stretch of the imagination this is absolutely inherently cruel these animals are tortured in ways that would never be acceptable in any farming agriculture system around the world um, and there's also huge problems with the lack of hygiene controls which leads to the spread of diseases like COVID-19 the Chinese authorities are moving against the dog meat trade now not because of the, the shaming they've had over the years because mm. of campaigners and all the media attention they're moving against it because they're concerned that it could be a key driver of viruses like COVID-19, not just from wild animals, but from domestic animals as well. When you kill animals in markets and you've got guts and blood running in the street, then you have a massive problem that could lead to zoonotic disease spreading to humans. We've got this pandemic because of that. We shut the whole world down and had the biggest economic collapse the world has mm -hmm. ever seen in living memory. And nearly a million people, as we talk, have died so far. Many more are going to die before this finishes. And that's because of what we're doing to the natural world and what we're doing to domestic animals. That's dogs, cats, meat in, in livestock industry and in the wildlife trade. That is not open for debate. No one's going to deny where this disease came from in the same way of MERS, in the same way as SARS, in the same way of Ebola and swine flu. We've got one wave after another and there'll be more to come unless we change our ways. So that's why, if only because we're selfish and we long to look after our own well-being, we have to stop the dog meat trade. The other issue for me, of course, is that dogs are incredible companion animals, incredible gifts to mankind in terms of, the, of, of our relationship with them that goes back tens of thousands of years. They've grown up with mankind. Um, yes. They've put up with all our torturing and suffering that we impose upon them, but they still trust us and give us great love and affection. They're incredible animals. And as we talk about COVID-19, we've probably got COVID-19 because these animals have been treated in the way they are, but equally dogs are now being dispatched to airports in every corner of the world to sniff out COVID-19. They're also being used to sniff out cancers. And there's so much more that they will do to help us. And I don't think we should ever forget that either. No, they are incredible. And I, I look at some of the dogs, you know, the, um, what are they called? The medical detection dogs. Right. And how they are really, really so clever. And they take their job so seriously, uh, Dominic. It's like they're so focused and they're, you know, once the, all the drug dogs you know that you see at the mm. airports and yeah, you know fine. they are such a gift to mankind and such a friend you know there's nothing really more loyal I think than a dog because you can do anything to a dog and it will still be loyal 
and it will still stand by you. So I totally agree. They are incredible, you know, and mm. I, when I speak about dogs at places like, you know, the Chinese embassy when we're having mass demos mm. against Yulin, I talk about, you know, I remember when the Twin Towers collapsed in New York City. It wasn't humans that went into those buildings in the immediate aftermath of that. It was dogs that went in there because that's all they could send into the embers of those buildings to try and find people. Yeah. You know, when you look at the people coming back from wars, when they have post-traumatic you know, stress, when they've seen and done yes. horrible things, it has huge impacts on them, their mental health. It leads to domestic violence, suicide, unprecedented rates. And what we found is the only thing that can bring people back from the darkness is often giving them a dog. You know, I've been to some of the toughest prisons in America, one in Louisiana, a friend of mine, a deputy governor of the prison in, in Angola in Louisiana, where we spoke to the governor about how they over the years tried to reduce the violence in this prison. And they mm -hmm. found the only thing that could really do that to a degree was bringing dogs in to be rehomed and putting them in the cells of prisoners who would then find love and partnership and companionship with the dog in a way they never had with a human. And it brought down the levels of violence amazingly and increased behavior and conduct, you know, improved it within the prison system. And that's now being replicated across North America and other many parts of the world as well. So wherever we look, you know, from dogs detecting cancer to dogs, Yes. come back from wars mm. and dogs in prisons or dogs you know going into buildings or earthquakes wherever it might be they're amazing they're incredible and yet we still treat them in such appalling conditions in terrible ways which is why the dog meat trade is so wrong and why it must end no matter what we do is it going to has it been this year will it go on this year It'll go on, but I think it will be reduced. I think there's an opportunity with COVID to try and, you know, bring it down to a degree. It won't stop. In some countries, it was created artificially. In, in you know, Korea, it was as a result of the Korean War in the 1950s. The country collapsed effectively, you know, from the American conflict, Chinese invasion, all that went with mm -hmm. it. After the war finished, you know, the country was ravaged. So dog meat became a form of protein. It wasn't something that had been part of the diet within the Korean culture for generations. It was introduced. So, you know, you still have dog meat farms in Korea now. Thankfully, the numbers are reducing. It's a very developed country. There's no reason why anyone should eat dog meat. It tends to be the older communities eating it. Younger people tend not want to be associated with it. We're seeing a similar trend in China. And as these countries get a bigger pet ownership market, then people hopefully think well, I want this dog as a companion the last thing I want to do is to see this dog being used for the meat trade so you know there's more to be done but we are progressing and we must keep the focus on it as well. Now have you actually met with the Chinese embassy and spoken to them about this? I've met with many Chinese people over the years and talked to them about it I've not talked with Chinese embassy officials we tend to you know have to just stand outside the Chinese embassy but I've okay. always said that we do that for a reason you know, the last speech I made before lockdown was at the Ealing Animal Fair. And I spoke to a big audience in a church there a week before lockdown. And I spoke passionately about what I thought was going to happen and the numbers of people that were going to die and how terrible this was going to be. And to be quite frank, I, I've not been proved wrong so far. But the point I made is that people might think we were mad standing outside the Chinese embassy with our placards. They're not going to think we're mad anymore, not after COVID. They're going to think you're absolutely right to be highlighting the problems of these vicious, horrible trades in wildlife and domestic animals and the dangers of humans, never mind animals. It is. I mean, I've seen some of the images and I try not to look at the images really so much. But, you know, as it comes every year, it, it's difficult not to see it also with some of the, you know, wildlife interests that I have because, you know, they come up consistently. And maybe I'm naive, I don't know. But I think to myself, why would mankind do that to these creatures? What is the reason 
to put them through so much torture. Yes, you know, there is inherent cruelty in mankind's animals. I see it all the time. It never ceases to amaze me. It could be badgers being shot in cages, dogs being boiled alive for their meat, whales being harpooned. You know, it never ends, to be quite frank. And in this business, you have to have a pretty tough skin because you're taking on very many vested interests around the world who want to keep killing animals. When you stand up for animals, you get a lot of mm. people that will come after you as well. But, you know, you've got to stand up. They need a voice, and that's what I try and do. I mean, how do you do it, Dominic? How do you, I suppose, let your heart carry all of this? Because it's it's a heavy burden, you know, seeing all these really um, difficult things and this cruelty upon animals. How do, how do you carry that responsibility in a way? Well, you know, I'm just one of many people that are out there doing this type of work. I think you've just got to feel passionate. You've got to feel you've got a voice. You've got to use it. You've got to continue to go in, even though at times you feel that you're not making much progress. Now and again, you just get breakthroughs. You know, we talked about the front page of the Times today about fern. I do think that's a breakthrough, but that's been down to a, a huge amount of work going on for decades in this country, you know, about the fur trade. And suddenly, you know, we might see a moment in time and it might be because we're leaving the European Union. It might be because you know Boris Johnson and people in government feel that there might be some political value in doing it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. As long as you do it, deliver it, that's what we need to see. So that's why we've got to keep fighting for these issues. And you also um, deal with the whaling situation. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's a huge interest as well. Yes, you know, whaling to me has always been something I've been passionate and felt very strongly about. I've been more involved recently because Born Free as the Charities had quite a lot to do in that in that area over the years. Um, whaling has become more topical again because the, after many, many years, the Japanese have gone back to commercial whaling. They started again last year, minky whales in particular, that they're killing in their so-called territorial waters, which is over 250 promises around the coastal waters of Japan. The Japanese have tried for years within the International Whaling Commission, a regulatory body set up to manage whaling, which has torn, torn into more of a convention to protect whales rather than to kill them. The name now is misleading in terms of what it generally sets out to do. You know, the International Whaling Commission set up a moratorium on commercial whaling, a sanctuary in the southern oceans for whales, and most of it member countries want to protect whales and not return to commercial whaling. Remember that in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, commercial whaling brought the whale to the verge of extinction in many parts of the world. And if we'd have gone on killing them industrially in the way that we were, there would be very few left in the world's oceans. But Japan has never accepted the, the, the reason to stop whaling. For years, it tried to undermine the International Whaling Commission from within inside the organization. Then in 2000. 18, it decided to take its ball off the pitch, leave the IWC and, and, and go back to whaling. So, you know, a campaign that started in the 1970s that gave birth to the, the modern environment movement literally had to start again with a new generation of people to try and draw attention to why it is that whaling should not go on. There's no real market for whale meat. It's full of heavy metals, cadmium, mercury, so it's dangerous to consume. Um, it's not particularly pleasant to eat. Um, most people in Japan don't want to eat it. Most people in Iceland and Norway, where whales are also killed, don't want to eat it. And a lot of it ends up as dog meat, you know, or fertilizer, which makes it even worse, really. There's also no humane way of killing a whale. You're still shooting a harpoon into an animal with a huge, complex nervous system that does not die quickly. So it's a hugely, hugely cruel and horrible way of killing such an animal. 
and what, we'll, what is the need for, for that in their there is no need. It's a commercial issue that's being driven by nationalism, by certain interest groups in the Japanese fisheries department and the Japanese government. Um, and it's, it's, it's horrendous. And, you know, I remember going to a meeting in the European Commission in Brussels yeah. last year and, you know, standing up in front of all the member states of the EU saying how disgusting it was that the European community had signed a trade agreement with Japan that took nearly a decade to put together and they hadn't used any leverage to stop Japan going back to commercial whaling. And this was ahead of the G20 summit in Osaka, which the Japanese were hosting two days before they sent their whaling ships back to sea. Yet no country in that summit actually raised a formal protest with the Japanese government about it. We got a lot of press attention because we had a big protest here in London uh, we brought Carrie Simmons, who was the fiance of the Prime Minister at the time, to it, and the, the Prime Minister's father, Stanley Johnson, so the media were interested in that. Uh, we got a letter published um, for, for the Chinese, uh, Japanese ambassador in the, in the national press, you know, signed by a lot of very well-known people, um, you know, naturalists like Chris Packham, Jane Goodall, Steve Backshaw, and other mm-hmm. Um, to say how horrified they were about Japan returning to whaling. Uh, and, you know, I've done a lot of media work on that issue, drawing attention to it. But I'm afraid we haven't stopped the Japanese doing this. Um, they They're continue- still continuing. Yeah. And, you know, I've done what I can. I, you know, when Boris mm. Johnson was prime minister for the Biarritz G7 summit, to be fair, in France last year, you know, Carrie Simmons was very good. We spoke with her and I said, listen, can you get him to raise this with the Japanese prime minister? He had a half an hour bilateral meeting and he spent half of the time talking about whaling. Um, which the Japanese didn't like at all. So, you know, we've got it on the on the, the wavelength of this prime minister. There is a, a genuine recognition this is wrong at that level. Um, but I'm afraid we've not been able to stop the Japanese. And remember, we've just signed off a trade deal post leaving the European Union with the Japanese government. So we've been very sensitive about not upsetting them because we feel it's more important we get that trade deal, I'm afraid. Oh, dear. You know, have you still got faith in mankind? Dominic. You have to, but you do sometimes think, you know, are we going to ever make any progress on these issues if we're not going to, you know, really take it seriously? You know, the World Wildlife Report that was produced two weeks ago on, on the depletion of nature and that, you know, around the world since I was born in 1970 is just shocking. You know, in the 50 years I've been on this planet, and I'm 50 oh. this year, I was 50 in July, we've probably lost about 65% of, of the species and biodiversity on this planet. You know, when I was born, I was born exactly a year after Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, 21st of July, 1970, a year after the moon landing. But in that time, when I was born on planet Earth, there was 2.3 million people on this Earth. Today, there's over 7.5 billion. By the time I do get to 80, if I live that long, we'll probably have 9.5 billion. Um, The world is depleting the natural resources it has available to it at an incredible rate. And climate change is becoming a massive problem as a result. And if we go on the way we're going on, as David Attenborough said in his very good documentary on extinction a week ago, it's going to be absolutely tragic. What is left will just be very little indeed. It is. It is tragic. And it's a tragedy, really, for the world. And somehow, I don't know about you, Dominic, do you feel that nature, in a way, is fighting back finally? I think it is. You know, I think there's more people in the last few months because of lockdown that have a closer connection with nature. I've noticed more anger about the badger this year from a new generation of people coming into it. I work with a lot of young people, young naturalists, Bella Lack, Darren Malacanolti, Maya Rose Craig, people that you might be familiar with. You'll see in newspapers on television. A whole generation of young people that are becoming strong voices now to, to, to be advocates, you know, to pick up the 
the, you know, the torch from people like me, I suppose, in Chris Packham and others, we're of a certain age, we can't keep doing this. Younger people are going to have to pick it up and do it behind us as well. When we're gone, they're going to live through the world that we've created. So, you know, I spend a lot of my time trying to get young people to think about why they must stand up and, and, and make their voices heard to protect this planet as well. Which is the important thing. It's about a generation of people that is coming up now you know, I mean, you're not old, of course, but um, it's the younger generation that needs to be educated and also to find an inspiration in this to try to change something globally. Yes, you know, I think there is a recognition. I think, you know, the, the Greta Thunberg's amazing campaign, you know, Extinction Rebellion, Animal Rebellion, I've spoken and worked with all those organizations and I have great respect for what they're doing. I think you know, COVID-19, the fact that it's connected, as we spoke earlier on, about the exploitation of the natural world and, and, and wildlife and animals. I think the climate change emergency, which is going to mean we're going to have to change the way we eat, the way we travel, the way we work. Um, all of this has is, is got to be at the front of young people's minds. Uh, they're growing up in a rapidly changing world. Unless they change the way they live, the way they act, um, I'm afraid it's going to be a very difficult place to survive in for them. And... How do you find the will and the inspiration to keep going, Dominic, in these times, especially? Well, you know, unfortunately, I have areas of work that I feel passionate about where I think I can make a difference. And I get up okay. every morning and it's worth doing something. There's lots of people have to go to a job that they don't feel particularly passionate about, but they've got to do it just to keep a roof over their head. So, you know, I always step back and think, well, I'm very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. I'm driven because I feel we've got to keep doing what we're doing to put a voice out there. Uh, I never say no to an interview request or an opportunity to write an article or to speak to people. I found the last six months terribly difficult because, as you know, I spent a lot of my time speaking to universities and colleges and marches mm -hmm. and protests and audiences. Now everything's being done behind a computer screen. Um, yes. And I, as many of us have found it, but I particularly found that difficult because, you know, my network of people I meet and connect with in the real world has gone from tens of thousands to about 10 <laughs> over the last yes. six months. And it will continue to do that probably for the next six as we try and deal with this pandemic for obvious reasons. But that is difficult. I'm not alone in that. You know, mm, mm. coming to terms with that is, is very, very hard indeed. And um, But you've got to do what you can. Thankfully, modern technology like we're using here has allowed me to do lots of different things, you know, bring people together. You know, for the Bird Fair, which is a big environment event that's held every year, we took it virtual this year. You know, I did two big sort of question time panel events, one with, you know, people like Chris Packham and Jane Goodall and Liz Bonin, mm -hmm. um, you know, people like that. On, on uh, and, and also one with younger people, like I spoke about before, like Maya Rose and Bella Lack. Um, so to me, it's been a great opportunity to get people like that in a virtual world and, and to reach broader audiences. And I do a lot for badgers relating to that type of thing and other British wildlife issues as well. But I do miss, I do miss getting out and that. I hope, I really do hope in the next 12 months or so, we might be able to return to some form of direct connections with people in a safer world. Yes, I mean, I hope so. It's something that, you know, I pray for as well, that yes. we can rekindle that connection with our fellow man, so to speak, because it is very difficult. And how has it been for you during this lockdown, Dominic? Well, you know, I've got a dog I, I love. Uh, I'm a with my partner and you know, I see my mum and my sister and her children and a few friends so I've, I'm fortunate I live in a place where I can get access to the countryside easily enough 
been to London mm-hmm. once in the last six months, which is quite surreal because I've usually spent a lot of time in the capital. Um, not travelled anywhere abroad, had to cancel planned trips to Norway to see a whale release project there and uh, Iceland and other places. So there's been lots of things I wanted to do that I haven't been able to do. Um, but equally, you know, I've spent the time writing, doing a lot of broadcasts, a lot of lobbying, campaigning work, you know, in the way that we are, you know, via Zoom and video calls and everything else that we're all having to deal with, really. There are some benefits of it. You know, it's mm. making me think about how much traveling we do. Born Free as a charity, for example, has shut its office down completely and it's gone completely virtual. It will significantly reduce the traveling of its team that have traveled a lot around the world to international conferences. Will Travers, its president, has got, a, I think, a vision of how we need to change in the, in the environment sector and I fully support it. Um, and I think more organizations need to do that. We can't continue just to travel everywhere. You know, international conferences have been insane, you know. Mm. And I've been like that. You travel around the world from one country to another, or you'll go off to South Africa to speak at a meeting for two hours and then come all the way back. We can't continue to do that anymore. You know, I think what's happened during COVID is that we've learned to use video conferencing and we should continue to do a lot of what we do by video conferencing. When we do travel, it should only be when it's absolutely necessary and we must think about the impact it's having. But that means that the global airline and hospitality business needs to change as well. And a lot of people are going to have to find new careers and we're going to have to re-engineer our economy. So there are massive challenges around all of that. But the idea that you can just continue to go back to normal the way it was before, I think, is, is just as dangerous as where we are now to be quite frank yes because i mean you can't go back to tomorrow even let alone to go back to that type of life with all those industries with all the people you know <laughs> it is a completely different world and i think and i believe this strongly that it will never be the same nothing ever is the same you know we can't go back especially when this has been such a huge global reset and a shift that we have never seen in our lifetime. I definitely haven't, for sure. And we have to to do things differently. Yeah, we we can't go back to the way it was. Um, But having said that, you know, that change is going to make a huge difference to the way the economy of the world works. But my view is you've got three tsunamis. You've got tsunami one is COVID-19 as a pandemic. Tsunami two is the economic impact of COVID-19. And tsunami three is the climate change emergency that's coming up behind the two, which is going to wipe us out unless we deal with it. So, you know, we've got to do all of this in the next 20, 30 years. And that means that young people growing up today are going to have to be involved in a huge period of change. Indeed. All of us, I think. Now all of us and I think that if we believe that we can stay as we are we won't survive in any case we won't survive as people not even mentally or emotionally or physically because things are so different and they are rapidly changing now Dominic what is the thing that inspires you what inspires you what is it that brings joy to your life Dogs, I love dogs, you know, and this week we've had a bit of a breakthrough on an area of work that I've been doing for a number of months. Um, two ladies came to me, a lady called Dawn and Sue last year, and they said, listen, we, we had a dog called Tok, a Romanian rescue dog, and I've got a Romanian rescue dog called Lassie that's under the table at the moment. And and this dog went, was, was basically went through a rescue system, was adopted, and, and the individual that adopted it took it to a vet and had the dog put to sleep for no good reason at all. And they said that, that the vet did not check the microchip 
and did not check for a backup rescuer to take the dog back before they put it to sleep. And I was horrified by this, but they said, we've also found that there are hundreds of other dogs where this is happening. And they said to me, can you help us? Because you've got good political connections. I know you've got a rescue dog. I know you've been out to Romania a number of times. Mm. And I said, listen, I will. And they said, you're connected with the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Can you help us meet with them? Can we help us meet with the British Veterinary Association? You know, Zach Goldsmith, he's the minister responsible. Could we go and meet with him? So over a period of months, we met with all those organisations. We met with Zach mm -hmm. and everything. And we, we started a campaign and they set up a petition, Tuck's Law petition, and it's over 130,000 people have signed it now, which is incredible. Oh my there's goodness. Been lots, there's lots of media attention, national media attention. And we were contacted by a Conservative MP called James Daly a few months ago, and he said, "Listen, I'm very interested in what you're doing, and I've got a, an early day. Uh, I've got a private members bill because you have a situation in the House of Commons where MPs put in for it's like a lottery, and you can mm -hmm. win the right to a private members bill if you're lucky, and that means that you can bring forward a piece of legislation as a backbench MP. Um, and sometimes when that happens, the government will say, oh, actually, we'd like a piece of legislation and we'd, we'd go to that MP and see if they can introduce it for us. And, and it's just been an, an alignment, I think, that, you know, the government see an opportunity to deal with this business because they're trying to tighten the legislation on microchipping of animals, including for cats, which they're now bringing in. And we said to the government, if you have microchipping mandatory, which you now have for new animals that are, you know, being born and registered, you must make sure that the vets surely scan those chips before they euthanize animals. At the moment, we have best practice guidance from the British Veterinary Association, but a lot of vets are not applying it. So up and down the country, hundreds of dogs have been put to sleep for no reason at all. Um, now we had a private member's bill introduced by James Daly MP on Wednesday in the House of Commons. Uh, and it was just wonderful. You know, he stood up and mm. I helped write the speech and he read it out. And he talked about Tuck's Law. He talked about the, the dogs that we were trying to save. Mm. And, the reaction in the House of Commons was brilliant. All the MPs gave their support. There was no one opposing. We've got strong support from the Prime Minister, and I know that his partner, Carrie Simmons, and others are very keen on it, and Zach Goldsmith as a minister is keen on it. Uh, so I think we've got real headway behind it. It goes to a second reading in January. Um, and I think that's important. So, you know, to me, what I think we will, will see as a result is that we will get this into the Queen's speech. We will get this as legislation. And often in the areas of work I'm dealing with, that just takes forever. You know, so for example, the ivory bill that I've had some impact on, as well as other campaigners, has taken four or five years' work. And even now, it's not on the statute books yet because it was subject to appeal from the antiques industry. We are at a point where it will become law and be enforced relatively soon, but it's been a very long process. So, you know, getting a change in the law is not easy, but I think we will get it on this scanning of microchips. And that's something to me that's important, and I'm really pleased. And all credit to to Dawn and Sue, the two ladies I mentioned earlier. They're just amazing campaigners. And I said to them, you've done amazing work. You've, you've brought about a change. And I think you will change the law as a result of your anger about the need to protect these dogs. And that's the type of thing that keeps me going as well. And it's, some, it's in a way, it's a vocation, would you say, of your life. It's something that is so strongly, I think, a passion for you. This is what comes across, especially when I've looked at a lot of your work and a lot of what you do, there is this real passion for what you do and a real belief in what you're doing. Yeah, you, you have to. And I think that shocks people sometimes. They, they go, well, well, you know, just another job, isn't it? Well, I've done just another job. So to me, this wasn't a job. I didn't get involved in this type of work because I just wanted it to be another job. It, it's a life. It's a passion. Of course it is. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to make a difference. 
And when I'm dead and buried, I hope some people remember that I, I said some important things, or I wrote some interesting things, or I made some important broadcasts, and I made people sit up and think, and maybe some of the things I did made a difference long-term after I'm gone. And that's all you can hope for, isn't it, in life? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we all want to be able to make some form of difference. And I always say I'd like to make the world a little bit better for people and animals, because that's just something worth doing in that sense, really. Incredible. And thank you. Dominic, really, for doing all the things that you do to help wildlife, to help animals, and all that you do, because we need people like you in the world that make a huge difference to these beautiful beings out there. Not at all. You know, you know, I'm one of many voices. There's lots of people out there doing equally important work and more important work than I am to a large degree. And some of whom get recognition, some of whom don't get enough, you know. Um, so all I would say to finish tonight is I just want to thank everyone. Doesn't matter where they are in the world, anyone that stands up to protect animals, often in very difficult places, threats and intimidation and problems that comes with it from the doggy rescuers of Romania to the people out in the fields at the moment trying to protect badgers against the colours, to the people that are outside the fur shops that are trying to stop the fur trade, to the people that are trying to raise concerns about the need to stop the wild animal trade to prevent COVID-19 and other pandemics. Thank you. Keep doing it. Keep letting your voice be heard. We can make this world a better place, but we must forever stand up and, and fight for change. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dominic, for joining me tonight. And I would like to ask you if people would like to get in contact with you or see more about your work, where is the best place for them to do that? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at domdyer, D-O-M-D-Y-E-R-7-0. If you want to find out more about the work of the Badger Trust, have a look on our website, badgertrust.org.uk. And have a look uh, on Born Free again. If you just Google Born Free, you can find out about all the work of the Born Free Foundation as well. Okay. And is there, are there, can people support you in your work? Is there... Um, you can make donations to the Badger donations. Trust, so please do. Yeah. You can become a supporter of the Badger Trust, so please do. We want more and more supporters and donations. Terribly important. Equally, you can become a, a supporter of the Born Free Foundation, so please consider doing that. That's the most important thing you could do at the moment. Excellent. Okay, now to end, I always ask my guests this, Dominic, some words of wisdom and hope for the world at the moment. You know, I think we can make this world a better place, but I think we've got to come to terms with the mistakes we've made in the past. I think we've got to come to the terms with the fact that COVID-19, as terrible as it is, has given us a moment in time to reflect on the world in which we live in today and the world which we will need to live in tomorrow. Now, we can use this moment to change the world for the better and to address the problems that we face, which is leading to collapse of ecosystems and wildlife and the climate emergency, or we can go on as normal and make the situation worse. And I think we've got to use the opportunity to bring about fundamental change. And that's the most important thing we can do. Wonderful words of wisdom. Thank you again, Dominic. I wish you all the very best in your quest for such a noble quest. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and thank you and keep up the great work. It's, it's been a wonderful opportunity to speak to you this evening. Thank you. And to you too. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Dominic Dyer. Absolutely incredible and worthy cause 
to recognise the plight of the animals and really recognise them as sentient beings that they are. Thank you so much for joining me today and I really appreciate your support and all the comments and the reviews that you leave. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot. Until next time, take care and lots of love. Thank you for listening to Secrets for an Inspirational Life, brought to you by your host, Mimi Novik. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and see you in the next episode. For more information about Mimi Novik and her books, music, and inspirational work, take a look at her website, www.miminovic.co.uk.